Grim numbers from Canada's Chief Medical Officer of Health. More than half the deaths of COVID-19 in Canada have been in long-term care and retirement homes. Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. We again are coming to you from a remote location and practicing physical distancing to enhance safety. The pain is palpable for those with family and friends in long-term care. The fatalities keep mounting of seniors with COVID-19. It's shone a light on such facilities as Elmont County Haven, west of Ottawa, or the Pinecrest Nursing Home in Bob Cage in west of Peterborough. The mounting numbers has the Ontario government focused on those homes and amending rules around those who work in them. Coming up, we're going to hear from Laura Tamblin-Watts. She's the CEO of CanAge, a national seniors advocacy group. First, I am pleased to be joined by Charlene Nero. She's a labor relations specialist, a part-time shelter worker, as well as a member of Decent Work and Health Network, a group aimed at improving working conditions and pay for those healthcare workers. And Charlene, thank you for joining us. A pleasure to be here. What are your members telling you about the current situation in long-term care homes? Well, our members are telling us that they're not surprised at anything that's going on now. Our members are telling us exactly what they've been telling us for the last many years, except now they're saying it, now they're saying it with extreme panic, which is that in, in, in homes for the aged, in group homes for those with physical and intellectual disabilities, in the front lines of the social service, whether it's in shelters, what have you, uh, they are grossly understaffed. It's difficult to attract staff because the pay is so low and the the government has done nothing to put anything in place either during this pandemic uh, in a timely fashion or prior to the pandemic. There, there was a period in 2017, uh, 2016, 2017, where some consultations were going on that I think gave people some, some reason for a bit of hope that some things were finally going to happen, like the establishment of ratios in long-term care homes, staffing ratios, and so forth. Um, Our our members are are essentially saying, see, we told you so, but they're also saying, we're scared. Um, I represent represent members in, I think, as of today, 17 separate facilities for for seniors, retirement homes and old age homes, and in one case, a, a hospice, a palliative care hospice, where there are COVID-19 outbreaks among the staff. So our members are telling us they're scared, they feel disrespected, and and frankly, they don't feel like the government, at least at the provincial level, is stepping up to any degree. What conditions are your members working in? Well, they're working... So prior to the pandemic outbreak, I don't think I know of a long-term care home where we where we don't have an ongoing grievance or complaint about staff working so short that people are getting sick or injured. That staff was working short before any of this started, even when there wasn't an influenza outbreak outbreak in place. What people don't realize is that the Long-Term Care Homes Act, um, it, it governs a number of things, but it does not, for instance, say you have to have a certain number of staff per resident. You have to, it establishes levels for dietary aids, but it doesn't establish levels for nurses or PSWs. It, it establishes protocols that rely heavily on inspection, but the inspections stop taking place. There is just no way people, I think, understand the conditions that folks were working in in long-term care homes and retirement homes. Retirement homes are exempted 
by the provincial government from WSIB. So we have people, I have people calling in tears saying, what if I go to work and I get COVID-19? I might or might not qualify for anything, but I'm not going to get WSIB. I, I could be in a position where I can never work again. But the homes are not, and they're not required to be enrolled in WSIB. Ditto shelters. Ditto uh, uh, group homes. So people, the most vulnerable employees who are precari- who are involved in precarious work, where they're working paycheck to paycheck, are out there, and they don't even have the fundamental protection of WSIB, workers' compensation, which we, I think, take for granted and assume that everyone has. Mm-hmm. The other issue is they're all, there's, there's a shortage of full-time work. There's a there's an intentional mandate on behalf of long-term care and retirement retirement home owners to not hire full-time staff and to hire part-time staff instead. And as a result of that, people have to have two or three or four jobs, and the wages can be so low that sometimes they have to have more than one part-time uh, full-time mm-hmm. job. I have I have I know of dozens, actually probably hundreds of workers in long-term care homes who hold two full-time jobs because they can't make ends meet on the pay from one. In retirement homes, housekeeping, laundry, dietary aids may be making as little as $14.50 an hour. Wow. Now, uh, when we talk about uh, the Ontario government and uh, it's announced new rules for those workers saying, no more going back and forth. How is this going to impact your, your members? Well, frankly, frankly, there's nothing that we want more than for our workers to be able to be nominally safe by, able, by being able to elect to work at only one work site. The difficulty is the, provinces, the province has been very quick to put any measure in place, which draconian measures which, uh, you know, take away the rights of workers to choose where they're going to work. They've made all these orders about redeployment, which take elements of choice out of the hands of the workers and elements of intervention away from unionized employees, suspending collective agreement rights all over the place. But they haven't put anything in place to guarantee the income of these workers. So there's going to be, they haven't anticipated the crisis, they haven't planned in advance, and they've refused to work with unions and other representatives of frontline workers who have been saying from the start, listen, we get it better than you do. We understand, I, you know, I, I lived through the SARS outbreak. I know, I worked in Toronto in a, in a, shelter, a homeless shelter at the time. I know what that situation is like. We have been telling the government what needs to be done. Instead, they make orders. They, they take no responsibility, put no money on the table, turn to the federal, turning to the federal government and saying, yes, we support the idea that the feds do a wage top, top up for healthcare workers. I mean, it's great. I support the idea that the federal government do that as well. But it's the responsibility of the provincial government to take steps now. Why are we waiting? They, they've taken away. So as a union representative, I no longer have the ability to say, hey, you can't effectively, you can't effectively dismiss this worker from all of their other jobs. So they used to work 50, 55 hours a week. And now you're telling them they can only work in one home without working with me to help put in place something that will allow them to make enough money to actually pay the rent and pay the bills. Uh, it, and 
and that's just that's just sort of the tip of the iceberg. That long-term care homes are being given the control to force people to work, force people to work any schedule and any shifts they want, and mandate people to work. Listen, I have to tell you, frontline workers in in the social services and in public health, they do those jobs because they care about the public and they care about the people they work with and work mm-hmm. for. They want to do whatever is necessary to keep those seniors in their care alive, keep those residents that they serve safe and healthy. But the government is not giving them the tools to do it. It's, you know, we're holding daily press conferences where we say glib things about testing and 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 we we make we make statements that sound very very good, but if you read carefully the orders that are out there, they're not giving workers and even employers, the tools that they need to do what needs to be done. This government needs to do what they did in British Columbia at the outset. They need to say, we're taking responsibility for running these long-term care homes. They've created the problem over a period of years, but they need to stand, They need to step in and say, we're going to work with the employer organ, employee organizations and employer organizations and unions and figure out ways for people to work. My members cannot pay the rent if they have to give up half of their employment. And they, didn't, they don't even know which half to give up. Mm, yeah. yeah. And there are no guarantees in place that they're going to have jobs to go back to because the government hasn't, hasn't – there's no comprehensive legislation out there. Charlene Nero is a labor relations specialist, uh, part-time shelter worker, and uh, with the Decent Work and Health Network, as we discuss long-term care homes and the conditions uh, people are working in. And I should point out that I did invite the Minister of Long-Term Care, Dr. Barely Fullerton, uh, onto the show, uh, but we got no response. So just... So, you know, we had the government was invited to join us at the table. Now, some of the most urgent and obvious protections for frontline workers have not been provided, according to the network. What are those protections? Well, the first protection is sick pay. Um, uh, You know, this is sick pay period at any time ought to be available to all healthcare workers. Uh, But sick pay during a pandemic is absolutely essential. People need to go to work knowing that if they get sick, they're going to be able to continue to put food on the table. There needs to be an automatic provision of 14 paid sick days everywhere, everywhere in the province. And as far as I'm concerned, when we go back to normal, as people are are now saying, we need to never go back to the old normal. There needs to be a new normal, and it, it, it needs to be better than it was. But people need a guarantee that they're going to be paid if they're forced to isolate and stay off work because they're being tested or they're a presumptive case. People need 14 sick days in a situation like this, partly because they're going to be exposed to COVID-19, but also because they're working in incredibly stressful situations. I don't know if any of you have tried to put on even a surgical mask and wear it for eight or 12 hours a day. It's Mm -hmm. difficult. It makes breathing heavy. And then working with extra PPE on if you're able to get gowns and you're not being forced to wear garbage bags in order to clean up potentially contaminated uh, soiled linens and so forth, it's hard to work in those circumstances. And a lot of our our members are having to pick up overtime. Uh, They're having to work 12-hour shifts. Sometimes they're working 16, 20 hours in a row because there's not enough staff to come in. That's that's actually just going to make people sick. They need to have access to to paid sick time. It's sort of a no-brainer. 
And it's something which is completely within the power of the province to do. Charlene, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Charlene Nero is with the Decent Work and Health Network, which speaks for many working in healthcare and long-term care homes. Currently, more than 100 long-term care homes in Ontario has an outbreak of COVID-19. In Quebec, the military is being deployed to help with some long-term care homes. When this pandemic was on the horizon, medical experts pointed to these homes as a key consideration for an outbreak. But it seems both levels of government are playing catch-up. And to get some more perspective, I'm pleased to be joined by Laura Tamblin-Watts. She's the CEO of CanAge. And and Laura, you feel there's underreporting of deaths in long-term care homes. How so? Well, there absolutely has been. Part of the matter is we didn't start tracking earlier enough. And the other part of it is we weren't doing enough testing to know who was dying of COVID-19 and who wasn't. So I'll just use the example of Ontario. They were following the old flu vaccine protocols, which said that you would test up to about three residents. And after that, you wouldn't do more testing because essentially, if three residents had the infection, it was understood that it was spread throughout the home. But as a result, when we were doing counting of COVID-19 deaths, we were only doing confirmed deaths. So if you had 100 residents in long-term care, and 20 died, only three who had the COVID testing would have been counted as COVID-related deaths. In your view, how has the federal government reacted to the crisis in long-term care? Well, I mean, this is part of the division of powers where everybody sort of points to the other person here. So the federal government has obligations for health in terms of public health, and the provincial governments have obligation in terms of delivering health care services. But it wasn't just until the other day that we saw the both sets of governments going to have a conversation about how we're going to deal with deaths in long-term care. We are in the middle of April. That conversation should have happened at the beginning of March at the latest. So we're hoping that in future we'll have a national long-term care strategy. But right now we're just trying to get everybody following the same regulations or guidelines across the country because viruses don't care about divisions of powers. Mm -hmm. Viruses don't care about where your province line ends. What they care about is trying to make sure people stay safe. Now, a a long-term care strategy at the federal level uh, would probably take, take the issue out of the hands of the provinces. Now, each province obviously runs its own long-term care program. Who or which one do you think has done a decent job and and which do you think needs some improvement? Our long-term care system across the country has been starved for years, and I'm not sure where I would say the best one is before COVID-19. What's been happening consistently over decades is we have downloaded the degree of expertise in long-term care. So not that long ago, we used to have doctors in long-term care. Now we essentially don't have any physicians in long-term care. We used to have regular nursing staff. Now in many provinces, you may only have one RN for an entire long-term care home, no matter how many residents. It used to be that licensed practical nurses were the people providing kind of real hands-on care. Now they're considered gold. And most of our work is done by very lowly paid, big-hearted, hardworking, but not very skilled personal support workers. And so we've downloaded this across the country. And at the same time, we haven't reinvested in the building. So we often have old buildings where four people are in a room and you can't have infection control in that way. 
you know, our long-term care system is one of those things that's been stripped out and inspections have gone down too. Now, in terms of response, I think we've seen British Columbia address it most head on. Dr. Bonnie Henry moved early on with the Lynn Valley outbreak by having the regional health authority, Vancouver Coastal, kind of take over top up salaries so that personal support workers only had to work in one place and make sure that the personal protective equipment got there. As a result, BC is starting to flatten the curve. Now, Ontario made that same announcement about having those uh, PSWs only work in one facility. Uh, You expect that will make a difference here or is it too late? Well, it should have happened a month ago as we've been calling out for it. And remember, it doesn't start until April the 22nd. The announcement was made days ago. So there was a full week involved. It also doesn't cover temporary agency staff. So there's still lots of different people coming out of long-term care. The only vector for transmission right now are people who are working because the residents aren't leaving the home. So it was too late. We've seen that they haven't been able to get personal protective equipment in. And we saw the Chief Medical Officer of Health Williams say very specifically time and time again that he did not prioritize personal protective equipment in long-term care. He didn't say that that was going to be an important thing. And as a result, PSWs and other staff members were saying, well, we can't work if we're going to get infected. Not only is it not fair to us, but it also means we're going to spread it to other residences. It really was a failure of leadership. Laura Tamlin Watts is joining us in the Unpublished Cafe. She's the CEO of CanAge, a national seniors advocacy group, as we talk about long-term care in the midst of COVID-19. Now, you're concerned one underlying element one underlying element in the pandemic that hasn't been talked about much is elder abuse. And why is that? You know, we know that about one in five older people across the country will be subject to some form of elder abuse, which is a staggering number. So, you know, that means someone that you know right now has either experienced it or will experience it. But during the time of COVID-19, that baseline is changing. We're seeing all kinds of exploitation, not just the kind of institutional elder abuse that we've seen in long-term cares, like in Residence Herald in Quebec, where people were led unfed, without water, and in you know incontinence products that were overflowing. So not just that kind of infection, but also the kinds where we see you know, people taking advantage of older people. So if you have pressures where people are coming home in multi-generational families, we're seeing adult children taking advantage of mom and dad, and we're seeing the scam and fraud artists ramp up. We are seeing all kinds of new COVID frauds and scams taking advantage of seniors at their most vulnerable. And, and you know, we talked about them being at their most vulnerable, the isolation for these residents must be extremely difficult considering they can't see family or friends because of the lockdown. The isolation is really tragic. And when we think about how dangerous social isolation is, one study showed that social isolation is as bad for seniors as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So people are being cut off from their loved ones. People are also really wrestling with loneliness and depression. It's not just long-term care home residents that are having that as well. And I'll just use Ontario as an example. When Premier Ford said we're putting an iron ring around our seniors in community, people 70 years and over, you know, that cuts people off who are usually out and about as well. So 
younger, older adults, people 70 and on, are experiencing social isolation sometimes now for the first time. It's even worse for those in long-term care. You know, there's there was uh, some talk earlier uh, regarding long-term long-term care homes and, and whether people should take their family out. What's your recommendation? You know, that's a very difficult decision, and certainly some people are in a new position. So, you know, if you have family members now, sometimes you know, four people, you know, mom and uh, a spouse, and then you may have older adult children now at home, you may be able to under some rare circumstances. But for the average person, in order to qualify for long-term care, the degree of fragility is so pronounced that most people just can't do it. So across Canada, in order to qualify for long-term care, you've probably got a cognitive impairment and you probably have incontinence issues. About 90% of seniors in long-term care do have some form of cognitive impairment. And, you know, for many people, their houses aren't accessible. They may not be trained in how to do it. And it costs quite a lot to make sure that you have the supplies that you need. So we created at CanAge a, a checklist to help people think things through. Some people may be able to do it. Most people won't. You know, when this is finally subsided, what lessons would you like to see lessons learned by all levels of government when you consider the initial response to COVID-19 and long-term care? I think there's three things that we really need to wrestle with, and some are immediate and some are longer term. The first is we need a national long-term care strategy. We need to fundamentally think how seniors care has been delivered in the past and how it needs to be delivered in the future. That means we need to think about more investment in home care. We know home care is mostly the solution. People want to stay in their own homes. We barely supply them with any type of resources to do it. So think about how we actually want to have seniors care in future because our population is rapidly aging. We can't keep this fragmented system with constant funding cuts. That's number one. Number two, we need to pay our medical staff and professionals the same, no matter where they work. So right now, if you're a nurse working at a hospital, you're making much better hours, much better salary, often double, and benefits than if you're working in a long-term care home. And you know that's unusual. Around the world, usually the, the work is valued and the location matter. So we have really instituted a systemic problem in funding. So nurses should make what nurses make no matter where they are. Same with PSWs and other staff. We need to change that now. And the last thing is we need vaccines brought in in a consistent way across this country. Every single year we have terrible infections come through long-term care like flu. The federal government is responsible for public health. It is responsible for making the recommendations under its organization and then kind of washes its hands of it and leaves it for every single province to fight with every other province to fight with every single negotiation for every single individual provider. It's nonsense. This federal government needs to purchase the recommended vaccines and then give those vaccines to the provinces to distribute. Because if we can't get flu right or shingles or pneumococcal, how are we going to be able to distribute a COVID vaccine? Laura, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Laura Tamlin-Watts is the CEO of CanAge, a national seniors advocacy group. Now we want to hear from you on our unpublished vote question. Do you feel the working conditions need to be improved for those in long-term care homes? Yes, no, or unsure. 
Log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote and have your voice heard. I want to thank Charlene Nero, labor relations specialist, shelter worker, and a member of the Decent Work and Health Network, as well as Laura Tamlin Watts of CanAge. And I want to thank you for listening to the Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.